blow my, let's go with metaphysical mutts today because I feel like that's a little fitting towards these movies. I'm Devin Shepard. I'm David B. Jacobs. And today we have guest. Oh, wait, no. <laughs> we are the Cadaver Dogs. As you can see, we are missing our third host, and he usually does this, and I'm still not used to doing this. <laughs> we don't have a third host, Devin. We don't have a hermit. It's just us. <laughs> <laughs> and a very special guest today, Chelsea Lupkin, who is a director writer, DP, works in the genre community, senior programmer at Short of the Week, all around. I, you do everything in film at this point. Like, I try. Yeah, yeah I try. <laughs> I try. <laughs> do I do it well? Questionable. <laughs> but we're so excited to get you on the pod. Chelsea, I've, we've been going to so many genre festivals together, I think, over the past Oh, yeah. I'm pretty yeah. sure that's... Well, we met at the Fantasia International Film Festival, you know, years ago. And years ago. That was, you know, that's in Montreal, if anybody's curious. It's a, a really great premiere, you know, genre film spot. And then since then, and it's like, I see you guys at the Brooklyn Horror Gatherings, you know, there's a lot of stuff. Yeah. I met you a year ago. Yes. At Brooklyn Horror? Mm -hmm. I think it was Brooklyn Horror. It's gotta be. Yes. I remember it. Bringing us together. Yeah. We uh, we watch <laughs> movies, we judge movies, and now we're going to do the, that today. Yeah, <laughs> It's just exactly. a continuation, really. <laughs> I mean, you are a professional judger of films, so this is very fitting. That's fair. That is fair. And you brought us to really fun films today that like I know you and I have like, we'll talk about it, but have very fond memories of. And David, these are your first watches. So like. Yeah, I've never seen either of these. Such an interesting conversation. I've never heard <laughs> of either of these until Chelsea is like, we've got to do these two movies. And I'm like, I don't, I don't know what those are. That blows my mind because they were like huge movies when they came out and they were like mega bucks budgets. But I was eight. Yeah. I guess I was, yeah, I think I was around that age when this, <laughs> yeah, when Spear ends, yeah, eight, yeah. nine, ten, yeah. something like that. Which is why they were terrifying. Yeah. Yes. Though well, rewatching them, I feel like they're just as terrifying. Okay. I do want to talk about that. Yeah. I think, I think the horror of these films will be, we'll talk about it. We'll get into it. <laughs> I'm going to move us into the first film so that we can actually get to the meat of everything. David, why don't you intro our first movie today? Renowned psychiatrist Dr. Norman Goodman flies in a helicopter in the middle of the ocean. Norman, along with top scientists in biology, mathematics, and physics, has been brought here to make first contact with alien life, deep beneath the sea. Norman himself wrote the Bible for these circumstances, handpicking his crew members. However, he d didn't actually think this would ever happen, and half-assed the entire report, doing only some research and choosing the scientists from his own personal colleagues. Uh, colleagues with whom he doesn't really get along with anymore. But even messier, what they find beneath the sea is not exactly an alien spacecraft as expected, but an American spacecraft from some time in the future, which must have been sucked into a black hole and launched itself backwards through time, like interstellar. The ship is littered with corpses decay and a massive golden sphere. The crew determines that they have no purpose now, since there's no alien life, but Harry the Mathematician disagrees. He says the sphere itself is alive, and then he goes inside it, not in a kinky way. Soon, frightening sea life begins to manifest. Aggressive jellyfish, poisonous sea snakes, a colossal squid. The sphere seems to be talking to the crew through a computer text chain. It says, Hi, how are you? I am fine. What is your name? 
my name is Jerry, and then people start dying. Eventually, Norman realizes that the text chain was misinterpreted. The alien is not named Jerry, unfortunately. They're literally speaking to Harry while he sleeps. See, when you enter the sphere, you gain an ability. The ability to manifest all of your dreams, every subconscious desire, every fear as reality. That giant squid was Harry's worst nightmare, and he inadvertently created it. The snakes, the jellyfish, those are Norman and Beth's fears because they all entered the sphere. They just don't remember it. Knowing all this, the three managed to narrowly escape even as Beth's suicidal ideations manifest a bomb. But once on the surface, they're left with the question, if they've survived, why is it that the time-traveling spacecraft had no record of these events? The three determine that mankind is not ready for these powers and use their abilities one last time to forget all of it. And with that, the sphere blasts off into space. This is Sphere, obviously, directed by Barry Levinson, Screenplay by Paul Atanasio and Stephen Hauser from a book by Michael Crichton. Michael Crichton, OG. Upon a rewatch, this very much feels like a Michael Crichton book. Yeah. It has yeah. all the workings. But does it feel like a Barry Levinson film? I will admit the entire time I was watching the movie, I thought it was Barry Sonnenfeld. <laughs> and I oh. was just like, oh, yeah, I see how this is the same guy who directed Men in Black. And then Devin corrected me. Other Barry. Other yeah. Barry. Okay, I want to start us off with like a fun softball question because I just I'm really curious the sphere manifests as David said dreams fears and this one it's it's primarily fears so Sam Jackson manifests the squid or Harry uh, Sam Jackson Harry we have the manifestation of the snakes I don't know what Beth manifests necessarily we can get into that but if the sphere were to manifest your fears what would be attacking the habitat Nose goes. I know you can't see us because this is a podcast, but I'm not going first. (laughs) (laughs) Come on, David. We know it. We know it. I mean, it's spiders, but also like, so the thing is like the sphere manifests their fears, but like it's all kind of dumb fears. (laughs) Not not to like judge people's fears or anything, but they're like, oh, what's like if you anything that could scare you, what would be the thing? Oh, a giant squid. What? Why? Why a giant squid? Oh. Okay, I'm really afraid of jellyfish. It's like, what? <laughs> that gets manifested, yeah. It's surprising to me that things don't get more messed up than they do because I feel like people's subconsciouses are a lot weirder than just yeah. like a fear of that, some animal. I don't think that people are thinking about their deepest, darkest fears in the everyday instances of their life unless they're asked this kind of question. So really, it's like, oh, he looks out the window or, oh, he's reading this book. He's going to think about it. He's going to have shower thoughts that just so happen to, like, you know, manifest a giant squid. Yeah. <laughs> but this is dreaming thoughts. This is true. But even so, even so with dreams, I feel like, and maybe this is getting too philosophically deep, but like even when you're having a nightmare, I don't think that people necessarily go to the the deepest, darkest things. Like it's, it just might be right. some weird manifestation of just a random regular anxiety, like having your teeth fall out. Yeah, they're really simple. Yeah. And I mean, it's touched a little bit on this in this film too with Dustin Hoffman's character. You know, he says that these fears are childlike. Jerry is childlike. And I feel like that happens a lot like when you do talk about what scares you the most. And Chelsea and I were talking at the beginning of how this movie scared us as kids. Like it's it's something so simple. Like, I mean, the snakes were terrifying. The jellyfish were terrifying. Oh, yeah. And usually I'd find that. And David, your answer was going to be spiders. And we all know the story from listening to the podcast that like that started in childhood, your fear of spiders. So like all these fears that we have today are rooted in something that happened, you know, 20, 30 years ago. 
it makes sense to me that their manifestations are, yeah, childlike. That's fair. Yeah. I guess I just wish we'd seen more of them learning about fears that they've never had, that they didn't realize that they had. Because I feel like your subconscious holds all of these things and you aren't necessarily aware of them. And then you find them mm. out sometimes through dreams. Like, have you guys ever had sleep paralysis? I've learned about fears yeah. I didn't know I had through sleep paralysis. I guess. But then that's when we get into kind of like the movie and the story part of it, where it's mm. like you need to have fears that your audience is going to be able to clue in on based on just yeah. the you know, the blatant characterization. So like Beth, who's played by Sharon Stone, she's crazy. So let's make her crazy. Let's make her, you know, trigger bombs, et cetera, et cetera. Like it needed to be so obvious, at least to a certain point. So that way, you know, we're all kind of clued in. But you're right. I think that it could have gotten darker if we had yeah. darker, more robust characters. Beth's suicidal ideation there is, I think, the the most interesting one. And I... I... I would have loved to see the movie explore that more and to have like, like I want to see her Christ over it. She's like, but I'm better now. Why, why am I still manifesting suicidal ideation when I've gotten past this and I no longer have those needs? You know? Yeah. yeah. Like maybe it's something, something that's very obvious to like, however, cause you know, we spend a lot of time on how she almost did it and yet we never yeah. see a manifestation of it. Is not all of them living in this habitat, the manifestation of their worst nightmare. Like if you were Beth, <laughs> would you want to live for like three days with the surface overhead? There's like a storm and then she's stuck there with her aggressor. That sounds like my worst nightmare. That is. Yeah. <laughs> and then like if you're Leave Schreiber's character and you're stuck there with like Sam Jackson's character who you <laughs> are so mad at because he got his degree like a year before you did <laughs> you know you're not wrong but i do want to say with sam jackson's character real fast so he's a mathematician and we notice because the first line of the movie they're like oh the spacecraft landed there in 1709 and then beth goes that's 300 years ago and sam jackson goes actually it's 288 years ago but the movie came out in 1998 so it's actually 289 years ago ha that's funny. I did find out about this. They did push. There was like a huge, I wish I they read a little it. bit more about it. They did push it. It was originally supposed to come out the year before. And then they push it because of some, I think it was like a, it was a spending debacle. They spent too much money. So speaking of all this like interpersonal character relationships, a big thing that I saw was like science versus government. I mean, we have this one character who's a military character who the scientists don't necessarily get along with. It's this weird combativeness between and, and specifically over power, I feel like the military running the scientists or the scientists running the military. Did you guys catch on to that at all? Do you have any thoughts about this? Yeah, the military is all just, I guess they're portrayed like just not smart. They're not smart. They're just aggressive meatheads. I didn't like him. There was nothing no. that he said that was ever not yelling at somebody, angry at somebody, schooling someone or putting them in their place. I don't think the military were depicted well in this at all. No. A whole plot point of the story being that Dustin Hoffman made up this report and nobody caught on to it. Like it's totally <laughs> fantasized and the, the government's like, yeah, no, this is real and we're going to spend millions of dollars on this. Which I think I got a little confused by it. So Norman, he has this report and it's this whole kind of guidebook of like, if you encounter an alien. Norman, Dustin Hoffman was specifically enlisted by the Bush administration to write this report that I guess they wanted a psychologist's opinion because they figured this would be a psychology experiment. And they you know, he was supposed to put a bunch of work into it, but it was also kind of like, oh, we're doing this just in case we ever encounter alien life. So it was like no one really 
took it seriously, including Norman. And then because of no one was taking it seriously, they also didn't really have any more of a plan beyond that. So then it actually happens in all military like, oh, great. But we have this this guideline that someone wrote specifically <laughs> for this event. So and then Norman is just like, oh, I completely half-assed that entire thing. I didn't think so happened. <laughs> no, then they fully take advantage of it. Yeah, I mean, let's just milk this. We'll trick the military guys and we'll just like live out a couple days down here and get paid and then we'll leave and it'll be because fine. you know what? Then that also depicts like the smart people as just being bad too, or at least morally unsound because even Dustin Hoffman's character, he takes Harry aside and he's just like, you know, hey, well, they gave me $35,000. It was my first, you know, mortgage payment on my house. <laughs> and you're just like, oh, bud. That's not, that doesn't make it okay. It's not ethically okay. Isn't your whole job to okay, like treat yes. people and like be the good guy and a moral barometer? What the hell? <laughs> well, Norman is just a terrible person all around. I think in this specific case, now that they have been enlisted, they're kind of stuck. I don't think they really have the option to just turn away and say, oh, I'm sorry. I made up all of that. We're not the people to do this. Goodbye. Have fun. Good luck. Like that's not a choice. It's also on the military that they didn't like tell them what was going on before they brought them out. Yeah, that's true. But Norman told them not to in his <laughs> guidelines and said, don't tell them. It said this would be a secret. <sighs> no, <laughs> Norman. Norman. Norman it's sucks. It's all Norman. Yeah. <laughs> Norman sucks. And just a little bit. I think it is like a little reflective too on what was happening. So this film came out 97, 98. We'll say 98, which is around the the Clinton impeachment. And it was definitely during a heightened time of like people being really judgmental of the government and like us really questioning governmental power and specifically women. and women, which mm. we can see very much in Beth being the only female. No, Queen Latifah, who is yeah, a badass. They killed them. They still, they just killed them all. Like, <laughs> So quickly. The so quick. the other tech, I don't think we see her face for like, we see the back of her for the first five scenes that she's in. She had maybe five actual lines. Yeah. That don't appear until after Queen Latifah dies. It's like, God forbid we have two women talking to each other in this movie. Yeah. Oh, no. Horrid. Horrid. That actually is pretty bad. It's pretty bad. Yeah. But I think power is definitely something that this film comments a lot on. I mean, specifically... At the end, we get the whole speech from Norman, who does talk about, you know, what humans can can do with this power and how we're not yet ready to have the power to manifest, which I think also is very much reflective of that distrust in government that I mentioned. You know, you're talking about the Clinton impeachment during our outlining, and I wasn't really understanding connection. But now, now you're talking about here, I'm realizing like, oh, yeah, it's Clinton had an affair with his secretary. Intern. Intern, Intern. Yeah. thank you, thank you. I, I was six. <laughs> I had an affair <laughs> with his intern, who was significantly younger. And in the movie, Norman had an affair with his patient, who was significantly, significantly younger. Younger. And it's it, it's fucked up. Comparable scandals. <laughs> yeah, it's taking advantage of uh, a young woman. Oh, look at that. Something we're all used to, and especially at that time. Yeah, I, I think there are actually a lot. Now that you're putting it out, it's it's pretty clear how many story parallels there are to just the time that this movie came out. Yeah, and it's interesting because, I mean, the book came out in 88, I believe, but I, don't, I, I did not read the book, so I don't know how much they changed, but I feel like these specific things obviously are kept in the movie and are big plot points in the film because they're specifically mirroring what's going on in the 90s at that yeah. time. Even if it's just a coincidence, it's still there. 
Yeah. And it's something that like attracts readers to it in the first place, right? Yep. Like this is why things are why they get made. Unfortunately, that is not the only circumstance of something like this happening in the real world. So. Unfortunate. But yeah, you know what I think what's interesting, and again, like maybe, you know, circling it back about how this movie dives into so many themes of power struggles. Yeah. It's very Michael Crichton, where he like, you know, creates these characters. They all have conflict with each other in so many different ways, whether it's, you know, proving themselves uh, against each other. For me, this whole entire film at the end, it's like, oh, this is literally just like, is man good or evil? Or like, are we ruled by the id or are we ruled by the superego? It's like such a simplistic power struggle like situation. Yeah. <laughs> like cool, There are two sides, good versus evil. That's it. That's yeah, it. That's it. But I do think that it's, I think, you know, the idea that, that at least they were intelligent enough by the end of the movie to say, hey, we're not ready for this power. Yeah. I mean, that's a little something, you know. They learned there. a lot about themselves. Yeah. I mean, the more that you guys were talking about Norman and how he is not the greatest guy, it's like, I'm so happy, Norman, <laughs> that you realize that at the end of the movie, like, oh, yeah, I'm not a good guy, and therefore I don't deserve this power. I'm like, thank you for coming to that realization. I think you know, it's the one time I've seen a man, like, apologize for <laughs> I'm going to make you mad. I'm ready, ready, ready for me to yes. make you mad? Yes, okay, so in the final scene of the movie, right, Norman turns to Beth. And he apologizes. And this is supposed mm -hmm. to be this like big moment. But like, then they decide to forget. So he doesn't yeah. have the accountability. Oh, you're this right. This is bullshit. So everything that, yeah. he, that they learned is All just erased. Gone. Yeah. Gone. Which is why he gets mad. Oh, yeah. And immediately Sam and him are like, why are you why touching are you my hand? Right. Yeah. Right. I saw something where someone was made, I wouldn't even say an argument, just pointed out a tiny hint of ambiguity that Norman and Harry both have their why are you touching my hand line, but Beth does not. So there is technically a bit of ambiguity as to whether or not she actually forgot. Ooh. I don't know if that's anything, but <laughs> just throwing that out there. <laughs> so women rule the world. I like it. <laughs> she just lives... With the secret and never tells anyone, but retains the experience or something like that. I don't know. I mean, I do like the idea, if only because technically this movie fails for a lot of story reasons. Forget the world building, forget the rules, forget the, the wrong math. Your characters have to grow from the beginning of the movie to the end. And mm. because they forgot by the end, nobody actually grows, which I think is a really interesting thing there psychologically but the audience does i don't the know is that a does. thing of sci-fi though that the audience always learns more and debates more than the characters usually maybe do? but isn't a plot in general how your character changes from point a to point b i mean yes 100 so. percent. but they do <laughs> change they just choose to lose what has happened right like they they did undergo the change and we learned more about them in the process they learned more about themselves in the process yeah i mean so if you tack on yeah. the idea that maybe beth remembers the thing that i like about it the most is that from the beginning nobody trusted her everyone thought she was crazy they treated mm -hmm. her differently they treated her poorly and so the idea that by the end she's kind of vindicated is kind of nice <clears throat> yeah, yeah i think that's why i like it it of all the people to remember, she would make sense as someone who would because I feel like she's the one who 
sort of gains the most from having this knowledge in her brain that like, but this happened. Yeah. yeah. And just to, just to add to um, a woman and Beth specifically being ready to hold this power, what she manifests is the bomb going off and thus like keeping the sphere mm. and everything, all the secrets down in the ocean, which I would argue is what they do at the end because they think that's the best idea. So she already had this idea arguably before anyone else did she's just setting off bombs to kill themselves to save the world she just does it so interesting preemptively (laughs) so interesting yes david did you want to talk a little bit about the therapist we we touched on norman a lot but was there anything else that you wanted to say about i mean i wanted to talk because the movie is a psychological idea obviously Mm -hmm. so i wanted to ask like Aside from Norman as a character in himself, how do you think this movie is depicting the idea of a therapist? Like, what does this say about where therapy was at this point in time? Is the movie pro or con therapy? I have two questions about that. Okay. Was he specifically a psychiatrist? I think he was specifically a psychiatrist. There is a difference. There is a difference. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, because I think that's a big distinction, right? Like... Okay. What kind of mental health doctor, whatever he is, is this guy? Because I would argue that now and also in the year of our Lord 2023, therapy's cool, man. Yeah. <laughs> but I would say that in 1998, especially with a whole generation of primarily, say, boomers, for example, they were all like, hey, if you have anything going on up there, keep it quiet, keep it a secret, don't tell anybody. It was much more taboo to talk about mental health. Yes, it was taboo to talk about mental health, but also at the same time, like drugs were cool. It was weird. Like Prozac was on the cover of Time. No, The New Yorker. It was like a thing that was cool to do and like Xanax was cool to do. So it's like weird that we are in this time of like, yeah, keep everything to yourself. Don't talk about your issues, but also like take as many pills as you can so that you don't talk about these issues and so that we keep you from being crazy. God, this world is weird. It's weird. But now now I see why they wanted to to have this character in this book, though, right? Because I think during the time we are also talking about how therapy can be helpful. It's weird. I was doing some research and George Bush, the first senior, he coined the 90s as the the decade of the brain. Have you heard this? I had no no idea this was a thing. The decade of the brain. And he he put a lot of money into neuroscience research that then brought out a lot of discoveries about how we should start talking about psychology, which then filtered in through our therapy and why it's like more commonly known now. But yeah, the 90s were the decade of the brain. So that's why he asked Norman, a psychiatrist, to plan for an alien encounter. Yeah, because he's part of the decade of the brain. (laughs) Fine. I like it. Well, you know what I do think, if anything? Okay, so given Norman is inherently not a great guy, fine. But I do appreciate the progressiveness of instead of just attacking, you know, whatever this sphere thing, this alien life form is, let's, let's send, um, let's send people who are maybe more emotionally intelligent to go talk. You know, if somebody is having a mental break on the street, instead of, you know, combating it with muscle, let's talk them down. Let's actually, you know, undress this thing Mm -hmm. mentally and figure it out and have a, a more civilized approach. I do think in that way, the psychiatrist angle is quite good. That's really interesting because, you know, after 2001, we see the complete opposite of that happen in films where it's just attack everything immediately. Yeah, I think it's pro therapy. The whole structure of the film is 
built like a therapy session, right? It's the analysis, all the title cards. You're like going through basically the steps of a therapy session. I couldn't mm-hmm. decide if it was steps of a therapy session or if it was like chapters in a book because Michael Crichton. Also that. <laughs> David, did you have a competing answer to pro or con therapy? Yes, I disagree because I agree that the movie plays like a psychoanalysis session, but also like our one psychiatrist character is a horrible person who abuses his power who takes advantage of his patients, who bullshits his research and doesn't really do research. See, but I think that shows that he's just human. Like at the end of the day, no therapist is like in charge of another human. They are also human. And they also have flaws. Quite gray. Yeah. Isn't that the point? Is that it's supposed to be gray and that we're not necessarily all powerful, all good, all evil? Yeah. I do think, though, that he, if we wanted to be completely 100% in the bandwagon of therapy is good, then Norman would have had to have been the hero the entire time. And I wouldn't actually say that he was a hero at all. I think that everybody was both a villain and a hero at different times of the movie. No, we've established this. Beth is the hero. She is the the good one. Yeah, I mean, it's it's not just Norman. Like, none of them are necessarily great at their jobs. They all keep making mistakes. That I think it was Liev Schreiber who messes up the code and puts them all back because he he gets that completely wrong. Sam Jackson technically is even just wrong about saying that they're all going to die down here. Like he he miscalculated that. They're all oh. making miscalculations. They're all human. They're all of their fears are manifesting. And it's almost like it's saying that like if we are the American people, then we're putting our trust in the military, in the scientists, in the people in charge to make the correct decisions and get everything right. But they are also just people. Therefore, why do we trust them? Why do we expect them to know anything? Human error. You're not wrong. Exactly. Like President Clinton. You know what we never actually figured out? (laughs) That's funny. We never figured out why Harry or the alien got mad. We never quite figured, we never quite got that clarity other than the fact that he's been alone for 300 years, finally gets contact and is angry and needs to do something. But we never really understand the trigger point. There's never really like any kind of resolution other than the fact that this thing escapes. But in the time travel theory aspect of it, we're going to see it in another couple of years. You know what I mean? Because technically this ship is going to get constructed by what, 2043, and then they're going to go out and find it and bring it back. So now we're in like a time loop. I find it interesting that the sphere leaves at the Mm -hmm. end. Yeah. Well, it has to because then the ship has to go get it, right? Right. Time travel. See? They have to go get it. And, go and get it. it's the three of them that, that push it out, though. That's a paradox, though. Like, yeah. the sphere isn't necessarily a bootstrap paradox. Bootstrap paradox is when the thing only exists within the time loop. So, like, you have an object like the sphere. If the sphere were in the ship and then it comes back forward, then that means it doesn't have any point of origin or point of end. It literally exists within this loop. Could. And it would be completely separate from everything else. The way to get around the bootstrap paradox is if the sphere existed before, then it came back and it's just like a little zigzag in its timeline, essentially, instead Who of knows? a loop. I imagined it was more yeah. like a loop. I mean, one theory I had, this is a, a completely me theory that I was thinking about. Is that because we don't know what the sphere is, we don't know where it comes from, we don't even know how old it is. What if the sphere is literally God itself? Like they reference God a few times. They talk about like Mm -hmm. the eels are not God's creation because they're Harry's creation. But what if the sphere is 
literally the god that created everything because his powers are creation god is, is michael Crichton only talking about creation first it was dinosaurs <laughs> or actually which one is first does fear come out first or did jurassic park hold on movie wise jurassic park book wise i don't know book that's what i want to know book release date was 1990 oh. so Sphere was 88 Sphere came first yeah Boom. Yeah, but where does sci-fi begin with Mary Shelley and Frankenstein and creation? Always comes back to there. God, creation, science. And Jurassic Park is definitely a Frankenstein story. Absolutely. I don't know if Sphere is, but. I love how this came full circle. Get it? Okay, I need to just, I just need to like. (laughs) Also, to circle back on something, because I realized that I haven't answered your initial, did you say it was a softball question? Oh, yeah. What would be my fear? Here's what I'm going to say about this. And some of this might sound a little insensitive. So here we go. (laughs) What is it? The Ocean Gate? Not to bring in billionaires who were crushed like a tin can. I mean, there were lines in this movie in Sphere. It was like the pressure and this, that, and the other, you know, like people dying down there. I think that already you've taken something scary and made it really fucking scary because you're essentially over a thousand feet underneath the the water i would take a space terror over an ocean terror where i'm pretty much buried alive in a tomb trapped and i can't escape easily i mean that that to me that's really scary there this is already nightmare fuel i would say that just being down there that's a hard nope no absolutely not goodbye yeah i don't need to see it and i wonder if i would make it worse by imagining squids or if I would imagine escape. Honestly, at this point, I would be imagining escape. Escape, yeah. And that has to be going through their minds at some point, right? So why is it only their fears that manifest? It's weird. I don't know. I mean, I think it's so claustrophobic. You're in the dark. It's cold. You could run. You could drown. You could get crushed. You could go insane. Like everything that is like a really deep, dark fear is already happening because you're in this extreme environment. Right. Yeah, and I think that's why it's only their fears manifesting because it's they're, they're in this environment where they're stuck with a bunch of people who they don't like in the middle of the ocean at the bottom of the ocean and like their brains aren't going to necessarily be going to happy places they're not really enjoying this yeah. no darkness. it is a little weird that no one ever manifests a sex fantasy but <laughs> <laughs> i mean honestly you're not i agree with that especially because you could cut the tension between norman and beth with a knife Oh, yeah. You can't mess with free will, though. It's like the God thing, right? But they do. They're messing with everyone's perceptions. Mm. Like in the end, when they're not sure where they are, like they are affecting each other. There's even a theory that nothing is actually manifesting physically, that it's all basically a series of group hallucinations, that you what is really happening is that you are changing people's brains and their perceptions, that they are seeing all of these things, and thus they become real in the theater of the mind. See, that's kind of how I read it, that it wasn't real. I mean, it could be real, but you still have the control to turn it off. It still has consequence. Totally. And I mean, I know we're going to get into this later when we talk about the cell, but technically... There's a lot of lucid dreaming parallels with this is that if you're conscious Mm. enough of what's going on, you can control the world that you're creating or how Mm. you're navigating Mm. that sort of dreamscape. But I think that in a lot of ways, this nightmare fuel acts like that. I like that. Lucid dreaming is fun. (laughs) Okay. Let's get to know you a little bit now that we've heard all your thoughts about Sphere. 
ah! she's making a very frightened face right now. <laughs> <laughs> no. Listen. So you are a filmmaker, obviously, as we've touched on, and you're also a programmer. What what are some things that that you're working on now? What what uh what are some things to for our listeners to know you about? Because we we know some of your past work. We saw Lucy Stale at a couple film festivals. It was making its circuit around, which is an awesome short horror film. Thank you. I saw Lucy's Tale on YouTube years before I met Chelsea. Then as we're all hanging out at some point, because I'm like, oh yeah, I made a few. I did this one, Lucy's Tale, and I'm just like, wait, I I saw that what you know okay okay so wait can we you know what this makes me so happy i'm also going to give a shout out to one of my my producing creative wifey sarah calavano who who works on all my movies with me Mm. this movie when it was released on altar uh which is gunpowder and skies horror platform neither one of us and me included like i especially did not realize that it was going to blow up the way that it did it's one of those things where you know as a filmmaker He's like, hi, I'm a filmmaker. Hi. Hi, hi. I want people to, you know, watch my movies and everyone thinks like, oh, the feature film is the big quintessential thing. And like, yes, I'm a senior program shorter at Short of the Week. And I think that short films are really awesome. But it is still very hard to be known for short films because they don't necessarily think that they're as elevated or as special as a feature film. And yet Lucy's Tale, for one, I think it's like at 6.1 million views or something like that. The amount of people who just know that short or come up to me and talk to me about it. There's like reaction videos on YouTube and on TikTok. It just like is the gift that keeps on giving. It's wild. The fact that you knew what that was before you met me is really cool. I'm really proud of Lucy's Tale. I'm working on a feature adaptation of that screenplay woo uh somebody give me money out there no just kidding Um, (laughs) you're not kidding (laughs) but actually give her money because it's really amazing (laughs) (laughs) and then i have a a couple of features in development one that i really hope to make in the spring again with my uh, creative partner and a couple of different production companies and hopefully we'll see me in production in the spring when is this coming out January. January. Oh, so let's January. hope that I'm making a movie by spring. You know, not let's manifest it. Let's manifest I think we it. should manifest. Yes. It. Great. Like let's manifest spring. all our fears that yes. Chelsea will be more <laughs> successful than us. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> but the one thing that you can look forward to see, and I think both of you have probably already seen it, uh, is Scooter. It's another short. It was at Brooklyn Horror. Yep, that I was saw the one. Met. Yeah. <laughs> yes. And it's going to be also on altar in February. So you'll get to see that. Nice. It's really fun. Feminist demon horror, maybe. <laughs> so. I look forward to re-watching it. Yeah, I caught it overlooked because yes. I loved seeing oh, Charlie right. evil. <laughs> oh, that's right. Yeah, no, you do. You know all the people. I mean, like, full disclosure, if you are a New York filmmaker, you all work together and you all make, like, if you're doing it right, you're just shooting the shit and having fun with your friends making, you know, Weird horror movies. That's, isn't that what we're all supposed to be doing? It's pretty accurate. Yeah, that's pretty much <laughs> yeah. it. Yeah, that's it. There it is. Wait, so the one that you're shooting to, and I know you can't probably say much about it, but is it the sci-fi script that I read? No, it is not. <gasps> okay, so you know what? There is a little lesson here, uh, or at least a, a, a good takeaway for any you know filmmakers out there who are struggling to get movies made, which is that it takes time. I know which movie you're talking about. Different horror movie is happening. Okay, okay. But be patient. It all happened. We're all manifesting all the movies. (laughs) I I can tell you one thing about the movie that I'm hopefully going to be making uh, in the spring. It's It's definitely a Cabin in the Woods movie. It's all very contained. It's pared down, but it is a spooky movie. And that is all I'm going to tell you. (laughs) I expect nothing less. (laughs) 
<laughs> I have so much faith that it will at least be spooky. <laughs> yeah, people die. That's all I need to know. <laughs> oh, yes. Perfect. Well, I, you mentioned that in February, uh, Scooter will be coming out on Alter, which will hopefully be around the time that this is released. Where can people find you to figure out the actual date? For yes. Release. My Instagram is just Chelsea Lupkin or at Chelsea Lupkin. I have a website. It's my name.com. I'm really original like that. And we'll we'll link it also in the show notes for everyone listening. So you can just Woo. click see more and click on Chelsea's name and you should find her stuff. Critique the shit out of my work, people. <laughs> Tear it apart. And if you haven't seen Lucy's Tale, then watch that on Alter. Devin, kick us off with the next movie. Child psychologist Catherine Dean, played by Jennifer Lopez, works with a new cutting-edge experiments team to solve impossible cases by planting herself in the subconscious of her patients. Though ingenious, these experiments are not yet successful and Catherine is frustrated she is not saving the children. Enter FBI agent Parker Novak. Through his detective work, he nabs serial killer Carl Starger, played by everyone's favorite bad man, Vincent D'Onofrio. Only by the time his team reaches Carl, Carl has fallen into a comatose state. Bad news, Vince, because Carl has one last victim trapped in a tank set to fill with water in X number of hours. The clock is ticking. The FBI's only hope is for Catherine to enter the mind of the serial killer and discover the location of the tank. Catherine goes on a dangerous quest through the surrealistic mind of a, quote, madman, learning of his traumatic upbringing and the atrocities he commits. Carl pulls on Catherine's heartstrings by appearing to her as a child. She empathizes with him and loses herself in his mind, believing this reality is now hers. Vince goes in to save Catherine and is also able to discover where the victim is in one swift go. Case solved. But Catherine isn't done. She goes back, only this time she brings Carl into her own subconscious. She gently drowns the kid Carl, ultimately killing the real Carl and saving him from his cruel reality. This is The Cell, written by Mark Protozevic, directed by Tarsem Singh. I mean, but he died. He died, though. He did. He did die. He, yeah, he died. Yeah. Which, like, why the fuck did they let her do that? Like, she's just a therapist they hired, and then she was like, "I'm gonna save him," and then kills the serial killer. Well, they didn't let her. She just kind of did it. She kind of did it, but then, like, there's no accountability. She just sort of like locked herself in, and everyone's like, "Well," because like that's the other thing. Unless you've been in this program, I mean, do they call it the cell? I don't even know what they call this mind thing. One of my questions was, "What is the cell?" Like, what is <laughs> it? But the thing is, is like they don't really know what she experiences, Catherine. Yeah, they never, they never really explain how it works. I mean, unless you've been in it, why would you ever know? For one thing, they can't prove that she made him die. For all they know, he died just coincidentally. For another, they can't even prove that this works. There is no proof that it works. Uh, you have the the rich guy in the beginning who's like, how do I know this isn't all, all hallucination? Even like you would think they would get the proof when it's like, oh, but by talking to him through the machine, we found out where she was. But you could also say, well, the cop was having a hallucination and in the hallucination, he saw the symbol that he'd already, already seen, seen, but right. now linked it to what it was. So he like did a little trippy journey and like like he did the mind journey thing and realized like oh i know that symbol oh let let's i know where she is now i figured it out there is no hard evidence that this machine actually works so there is no way to prove that she killed him 
This is okay. So technically, I know that it's trying to portray psychology or psychiatry or whatever the fuck as they're trying to make it so, you know, these medical mental professionals, however the hell they are, are good guys because essentially it's their system that allows the cop and Catherine, played by the Jennifer Lopez, I love her, (laughs) but to find the bad guy. But the one thing, the one major flaw in all of this, in my opinion, that makes it bad and just as villainous as anything else, it lacks consent. Because it's like, here, enter Mm. my deepest fears and learn everything about me that I'm not telling you. Let me just go in your brain. Let me just dive around, look around a little bit. Which I think she brings up. She does bring that up when they're talking to the FBI about it. And she's like, he's not consenting to this. Like, I need to be, like, okay with it. Yeah. Oh, because I guess with the kid, the guardian is consenting to it. Yeah. But then you think about another facet of consent that really blew my mind in not a great way. I think this movie is also trying to depict cops as good guys. Authority as good guys. Yeah. However, coming back on that consent, does Vince Vaughn get off on making out with Jennifer Lopez in this serial killer's mind knowing that she's out of her mind? Wait, did that happen? Did yes. I totally erase that, that from happened. my brain? Yes! I also erased that in my brain. I used my sphere powers to forget that, apparently. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> So they're on the bed. This is when she's already kind of lost and she's got that weird face mask thing and it's like very the iconic, you know, the My next scene. Halloween costume, yes. Yes. And then <laughs> he takes off the mask and he's like, Catherine, Catherine, like, hello. And Vince Vaughn's sorry, like, I've always felt like he wasn't likable and I never understood why they always made him hero characters. He's just yeah. kind of skeevy to me. Yeah. Sorry, Vince Vaughn, if you ever watch this, I can't, you just be better. Okay. I'm sorry. But in general, he's just like, Catherine, Catherine, it's not real. I'm trying to save you. I'm trying to save you. She starts to like seduce him and try to make out with him. And then he lets her. What the yeah, fuck? Yeah. That's not okay. No. Yeah, the way women are portrayed in this film is very interesting, though, because like, is it in a good light? Is it in a bad light? They're obviously sexualized in some way. But at the same time, I'm uh-huh. like, well, yeah, but Ooh. I kind of feel like there is a there is a lot of feminism in here, though, but beyond the sexualization of their bodies. Yes, but like, so I have there, uh... there's a lot to talk about with the gender dynamics, but can we get back to that? I want to get into the the. The, the outline order <laughs> Sorry. and I had a, I had a, I had a way to do that I had a transition <laughs> if that's okay mm-hmm. is that okay oh yeah yeah cool cool fuck where'd my fucking where'd my outline go <sighs> there we go but off the propaganda though because that is there's definitely a lot of propaganda in this movie but also feels kind of like something that was really popular in this era that in the 1990s, there was a very a huge boom of movies that focused on the serial killer thriller. It was all these thrillers about mm-hmm. serial killers. It was often about the police pursuing the serial killers. And I'm wondering if you guys have an idea, because it feels like this is such a 90s thing. Like, obviously, there are serial killer thrillers before, there's serial killer thrillers after. But in the 90s, it seemed like a very specific movement. Thoughts? Why did that happen? Why the 90s? Know, Why like, serial killers? It's it's very Seven yeah. meets Silence of the Lambs is yeah. the cell. Except meets in Inception. a weird... Meets, it's either Inception <laughs> or The Matrix, which is also another thing to think about. It's like all of the 90s yeah. is straight up, you know, psychological, let's get into your brain space. So, you know, obviously yep. we just talked about Sphere, but then The Cell. And then like when you think about The Matrix, I mean, that was a big iconic moment of 
let's make you know whatever is in our brains reality yeah this movie definitely took the Which, leather from the matrix yes <laughs> yes yes and i think the 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 getting into our minds part I, for me that feels like very technology based like obviously the 90s we were seeing the boom of the internet or the start of the internet and us all moving to online so i feel like that is very much a feeder mm. into it but going back to the serial killers specifically i read this interesting article on anatomy of a scream and i don't have the author's name in front of me so we'll have to link it in the show notes but it was talking about how we're coming out of the 80s which are huge you know a big slasher craze was happening in the 70s and 80s and we're also seeing like off of the 80s video nasties a lot of like pushback against blood and gore and seeing the MPAA getting like really down and dirty with what we are and are not allowed to show on screen. And this article is talking about how the 90s serial killer thriller craze was kind of a response to that in terms of let's keep the darkness of these characters, aka the slasher characters, but get rid of the blood and the gore and make it more of a police procedural. Procedural. Nope, I can't say that word either. Procedural? We can't say any words today. We just had daylight savings time. We thought we were going to lose an hour, but then we gained an hour, which was surprising. So then we thought, oh, we have an extra hour, and we wasted it all, and then we wound up losing even more sleep as a result. Yeah. (laughs) Go on. Thank you. Yes. Well, that was was it. I just thought that was really interesting. And I'm like, yeah, no, that makes sense. We, It's kind of like a, a gothic horror craze in terms of like, we got real yeah. dark visually in the 80s, but then come the 90s, we were like, okay, we can't show blood. Let's talk about it. And let's talk about it. I think that the 90s serial killer movement, um, as far as like interest in, in an adaptation on movies, was much darker, in my yeah. opinion. It's 1, way darker than the, than the crazy, like slasher movies. You can understand the, they're just monsters. These people are just monsters yeah. and they're going to go kill you. But with serial killers, I actually found that the narratives in these movies are much more fucked up. They're more like, you know, <laughs> sick, twisted. The first thing that like upon the rewatch of The Cell, I was like, who wrote this? Are they okay? <laughs> no, but you're right. It's weird that like, yeah, we went to, okay, they're big scary monsters. Now let's try to understand the scary monsters. Why yeah. are they the way that they are? Yeah. Let's, Maybe not necessarily empathize with them, but learn from them. What are we doing wrong as a society to create the monsters that we have? It feels a little bit to me like, I mean, the movies are at least striving to be more realistic. That doesn't necessarily mean they are, which I understand how completely unrealistic most slash movies are. But regardless, that doesn't mean these are more realistic than slashers still. But they're they're trying to be. They have the presentation as though this is a grounded story that could be real and could actually happen. By the way, the authors of that article I found were Kathleen Killian Fernandez and Chris Vander. It's spelled K A A Y. So yeah, I don't know if these actually are more reals. I think it was it was like a rebuttal to. We've talked about why the slasher craze happened in the 80s before with like all of the uh, there, there was some suburbia dis- disheartening with the suburbia of America. There was some backlash mm. against Reaganism. There we go. We got him in the episode <laughs> and family values and all that. But now here we have like a decade later and people are kind of sick of slasher movies and critics have always hated them. So they're kind of just saying, OK, well, let's do 
that, but a little bit different. And yeah. Science of the Lambs is probably the one that really kicked it off. Like there, I, there yeah. were a few before. Like I think Manhunter came first. But with Science of the Lambs, you know, it, it won all the Oscars. It was a big deal. It's still beloved today. It's an amazing movie. And it kind of just created the new template that everyone was trying to copy for the next decade. Yeah. And totally. not necessarily as well. <laughs> But can I just say that, okay, so given I don't always hot take trust Rotten Tomatoes, but the cell got a pretty bad score. And I would say what's interesting about this is like quite a few psychological thrillers and horror movies that I love also got a very bad score. But in general, like, yes, there are some movies that did it better than others. Do I think that the cell was groundbreaking? In some ways, kind of, yeah. Like the fact that... Mm. You know, we get into this headspace, like the art. Can you imagine what this oh script God. must have looked like to be like, okay, well, we need to somehow chop something like Silence of the Lambs, except we're going to go in their headspace. And then you just see these like twisted, fun house, almost, you know, haunted house type. Like the imagery is still just so haunting. <laughs> it's so good. And there are like so many specific artist references that this director makes. And I feel like it's no surprise yeah. that this director directed the REM music videos. It's like, yes, this is a giant REM music oh. video. <laughs> right? Yeah. 100%. Yeah, that makes sense. This would be a music video director. Uh, this movie is fucking yeah. beautiful, by the way. It's the beautiful. Amazing. The DP, I think he only does music videos. I think this is the only thing that he did. It makes perfect sense. It's just visual eye candy. But at the same time, yeah. I'm also kind of like the horse slicing, the women who are looking up at the sky, talking on the sand. I mean, those things, I, like I can't unsee them. Yeah. Yeah. That horse thing gave me nightmares for ever. Ever since I first saw this film. Yeah. I was like, I'm not saying this again. I like the staircase. The staircase. Yeah. It's so, it's, it's like, it's literally, it's just a, like a staircase and a wall, but like the, there's so much texture in it. It's so, mm. it, it, it really is like you're looking at an impressionist painting or something. It feels like very much like a counterculture film. I don't know. You said Reaganism, David, and it's making me think that like, yeah, the 80s were like all about fitting in, about doing well, about getting rich, about, you know, bringing back the nuclear family, as you mentioned, which is touched upon in this film of like, we very much see Carl come from a broken home, which maybe not is technically directly commenting on the nuclear family, but definitely mm. talks about how children are raised at this time, right? Like yeah. touching a little bit on nature versus nurture, I feel like. Yeah. And I thought it was really interesting to see the serial killer in this vein, who he's both someone who we're empathetic toward and he can be likable. And then also just this incredible dark monster of a person because of what we see him do. Wait, so you did empathize with his character? Only when... Catherine does only mm. when she speaks mm. to him in certain certain places. And we're like, okay, I understand. Because at the same time, we have to believe there's some sort of goodness in him because otherwise, why would Catherine go back in? That was always like a, a hard one for me. It's a hard sell. It's hard. But I think it's it's very much part of the conversation of the film and doesn't necessarily give us like a black and white statement here. Because when Vincent Vaughn's character, he's talking about a previous serial killer that he was trying to convict who did end up killing a young girl and then later got away because he he pleaded insanity. And so they're like, oh, he didn't commit this crime because he was insane. And I feel like that story compared with Carl's story is so interesting, interesting because it's like, yeah, at what point do we blame insanity and what point do we blame 
their upbringing. And I like Vaughn's line in response to that was that I believe that someone can go through all of that abuse and horror and still come out a decent person. Yeah. Or not yes. killing somebody. Yeah, exactly. Yes, exactly. That they can that that he believes that that will not is not the thing that makes you messed up in the head. Um, yeah. No. I mean, it's more complicated than that, but I do yeah. essentially yeah. agree with him. I didn't empathize with Carl, but for me, that's also kind of just because I didn't buy into a lot of the psychology in the movie. So no. that made it hard. To <laughs> no, like, listen, listen, him. listen. It's not that I empathize with Carl. Excuse me. Let me let me clarify this. I emphasize with how I would say Vincent D'Onofrio was playing him in certain scenes. Mm. He mm. was core evil, vile human being. He was gross. He was disgusting. He was bad. Like he was the big bad. I don't think I was more giving a nod to the fact that he was performed so well. Yeah. He was indeed. Yes. He was indeed. (laughs) Layered. Yes. Very layered. The the little kid obviously was not performed by Vincent D'Onofrio, but... (laughs) but I thought it was interesting that they, that they showed so many different versions of Carl's self in his mind being the child versus like this... Mm. He was a king. It was like an evil king. Evil king. Kind of. I think it did well at showing, you know, our innocent, true, good selves, which is interesting that it's exemplified as a child. Maybe we should talk about that. Versus like this evil, powerful, kind of just like relentlessly abusive king. And it 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 was interesting to see that as in his mind, you can see that he is debating with himself versus like, maybe at one point I was good, but now my future self, my real self is evil. So you see that debate going on in his mind. Well, you see a it, lot. it, the evil I think is depicted as an adult and a king because yeah. that's the all powerful right. part of his brain that's like, hi, I, I'm dark as fuck. Here we are. And it's like you let me curse one time and now I'm going to curse the entire time and I'm sorry. (laughs) (laughs) My parents get on me so much for cursing on the show, but I don't. They do? Your parents listen to the show? They do. Oh, (laughs) no. Cool. Hi, Devin's mom and dad. (laughs) That's adorable. Hi. (laughs) The king's always trying to capture the kid too, right? So it's like the, I think the, the, sympathetic part for for me is like oh no he wants to keep some goodness in him but he's like constantly trying to to fight against this evil but in the end like evil's gonna win which is kind of sad it's a pretty bleak i mean i know we rescued the girl Mm -hmm. in that weird liquid cell drowning cell terrarium thing with (laughs) fast food that she was eating next to a toilet I think that, uh, I don't know, it, it just, God, this movie was weird, wasn't it? <laughs> it was weird. It was weird. Can we talk a little bit about the motif of water? Because it's very present in every single storyline. What was your take yeah. as what the water represented in the film? Well, they said they said something about how water was supposed to trigger this type of schizophrenia. I obviously have not Googled to like, I don't know. It's not how... a real, it's, it's, it's not so a real thing. Made All up. of this is not Made real. up for the but, movie. But yeah, like made the up for the movie, it's not real. Spend... <laughs> The weird suspension thing, like there's a lot of suspended people, whether it's the hooks on this guy's back or even when they go into the mind and this thing. There's some weird random – I don't know why water is such a big thing in this. I respect a thematic thing throughout a movie, especially visually. It was very cool. But like Mm -hmm. do I think it's actually working for the story? No. (laughs) I actually do. So the water – they talk about baptism at some point. They showed how like Carl – when he was baptized, his father like held him in too long, and he nearly drowned. Uh, and you know, baptism is your you guys are 
more aware of baptism than me because I'm Jewish and I'm Jewish. I don't Jewish know shit. <laughs> Great. Devin, you can tell us all about baptism, but my understanding is it's like a sort of rebirth that cleanses you of sins. Is that right? Yeah, it's from my very little knowledge of it. I've been baptized but have not stepped in a church since. I think it's Catholicism, right? Where the child is born of all previous sin. So they're still like necessarily like full of sin. And then the baptism is cleansing them of that sin. Oh, see, I kind of assumed that because it was like this rebirth part where he gets baptized, but weirdly that's like the rebirth of whatever this villain is in his head. Well, it is a bit of a perversion on the baptism since he almost died while he was in it, which I guess you could even say like, if you want to go with the nature aspect, then there is so much sin inherently inside of him that to cleanse him of it is to kill him or hmm. it's to nearly kill him. That hmm. cl cleansing him of his sin is inherently dangerous, which happens later on. She tries to kill the dark version and it still kills the kid as well. So I love that. You're yeah, right. But like he's that. drowning his victims because that way he is cleansing them of their sin as well. He is erasing their persona. What is their sin? Yeah, that that was what I was yeah, confused about. Their sin it's is like, being women. <laughs> that I that guess I so. don't see. Yeah, yeah, because he tells the story in his mind to, to Catherine's about the bird that he saved from his father. He said he like captured a bird. He was worried that his father was going to do worse to the bird, so he drowned the bird in water versus right, letting right, it right, like, right. see the evil that his father was. And to me, I read that as like, oh, he's saving the women. It's not that he's cleansing them of their mm. evil. It's that he's saving them from a life that could be potentially worse for them. Which I don't mm. understand. They actually never really get into why he was killing the women, mm -mm. do they? Why did he kill no. women? Let's talk about it. I don't know. I, 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 he's just messed up. Like he was definitely sexualizing them, turning them into dolls. He was killing them. I, they don't really explain why. Yeah. The doll, the dolls thing is interesting to me. I read it as he views men as evil. I mean, like his father was the person that he mm. knew and, and like really understood the most. And his father was arguably evil. And so I kind of see it as, I mean, relating it to the bird story that he's taking these women and saving them from a, a world of them being abused, of them having to face men, of them being like, he sees them as something that is precious and, and able to be saved. And he sees reality and men specifically as something that you don't want to face and that it's better to die than to live in reality. I did catch reality. that. Yeah. yeah. Which makes no sense, but okay. Oh yeah. Okay, it makes Carl. no sense. Okay, I mean, Carl. Yeah. <laughs> well, he's crazy, Chelsea. I know he's crazy. I mean, of course, also, you know, we drown them in that game with that water motif. <laughs> David, did you have any other thoughts about the water motif and why he kills women? I mean, I, 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 I went with the more obvious interpretation of why he kills women, which is that it is sexual. Yeah. I why, though? It. Why did you see it as sexual? Well, he does. Well, he does does he, thing. though? Yeah, he absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, he's masturbating. But yeah, it's he just was a close up of his face, right? No, and no, he's no. Screaming. It's he, his face, but his arm is like reaching down. He's going like ah, and he's shaking, and yeah, the know, whole bars were going yeah. like he was nasty. Yeah, I mean, I, what were his were his were his yeah. arms also strung up? Like maybe he was doing more no, of just a jerking his, motion. No, okay, his, his arms back. were free. Yeah, his, his arms, arms were free, free so that he could masturbate. Okay, <sighs> gross. Dude needs porn. Dude needs porn. Dude, I mean, he has it. It's dolls. The Cell is a monster of a movie. Let's just say that. And it's still just as freaky as it was the first time I saw it way too young. 
way too young. Yeah. Yeah. Now rewatching, I'm like, yeah. Why? Yeah. What is this rated? Cell is. I'm is guessing this R? R. I'm gonna assume it's R. Oh yeah. Since there's, there's no masturbating and naked. Yeah, there's a lot of stuff. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I feel like we kind of touched on everything in some weird way on the outline, but did anything have, did anyone have anything that they wanted to say specifically? Let's compare it. Let's do it. I mean, the thing that we saw that we keep coming back to for both of these is like both of these movies talk so much about evil versus good in a way of like through, through humanity, right? Like each one touches on, are we inherently evil? Are we inherently good? What is the gray in between? How do we become evil if we become evil at all are we born evil and i don't know where i'm going with that that was just the theme the common theme (laughs) well yeah i mean it's like i think the common theme that i'm seeing also like are people just monsters i think a lot of people like there is this critique of what makes us good and bad and when can we cross that line when do we cross that line whether it's you know in sphere of manifesting something that can kill their friends or is it in something much darker where the intent is very much forefront in your brain and you're kidnapping girls using your dog as a (laughs) (laughs) as a tool to to do that Mm. yeah i think that there's something that that's explained on both levels of like both subconscious and conscious do you think either the films make a substantial stance on is man inherently good or evil i think sphere just says that we're not really emotionally mature or developed enough to make bigger, grander decisions. But there's hope. There's hope. hope. I think with the cell, if you are a monster and you're born a monster, you're unforgivable. I think it makes that argument pretty clear. I don't think it makes it. For Carl, Carl is unforgivable. I agree that he's unforgivable, but I don't think that the movie is arguing he's unforgivable. I think that the movie makes the point that she basically mercy kills him that she she does forgive him she says like oh it's not your fault and killing him is not like you must be punished it is this is a mercy to you he asked to be killed and she says okay but i think she's the only one who felt that way because remember even some of the other characters were commenting like isn't it weird he she took the dog at the end she adopted the dog yeah but she's our perspective character i think we're i think we're we're meant to agree with her that we're we're meant to be like, oh, she's the one who's seeing what everyone else can't see, which like even aside from all the inner workings of his brain, like he lets himself get caught. Like he knows that yeah. what he's doing is bad and he lets himself get caught. Yeah. Uh, they make that point in the movie that like, oh, we found the hairs of the albino dog. That's a really rare thing. The killer, it's weird that the killer would mess up this bad, even though it's not in the real world that happens all the time. But in the world of the movie, they're like, it's really weird he would mess up like that. So it's almost like he wanted to get caught. And the idea to me is that, yes, he wanted to get caught because he wanted to stop this and couldn't stop himself. So he brought in outside forces to stop him. Which parallel Jerry or Harry in Sphere couldn't stop himself even though he had the power and he needed to mm. remember that line yeah mm-hmm. your subconscious is just becoming reality no matter what you want to do to stop it you you cannot control your subconscious but i think i do think whether or not you know if carl is is good or bad and what we're supposed to believe it does make me question like are we supposed to like catherine then because are we supposed to be happy that she saves him in the end? Are we supposed to like agree with that choice or are we supposed to be, it's, it's, a, it's a hard line to cross. And it, it, I'm just like imagining too. So she chooses to present to him as basically the Madonna, right? Like sh- sh- that is her, vis- she's envisioning herself as a savior, which is kind of egotistical. Yeah. 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 She's like, no, I am the better person here because I am saving him by killing him. 
but also the other argument being that like yes women are is the better sex because we know how to empathize with everybody and can <laughs> i <laughs> certainly rolled my eyes at the over the topness of jennifer lopez's internal workings of her brain and how perfect she is i definitely rolled my eyes at that but i don't yeah. think the movie has any self-awareness about that no, I, think I, don't the movie, think so I think you're just supposed to take that at face value but it is worth noting that even with that, she still has the potential for evil if she were corrupted, because when she's in his mind, she does become like his accomplice. She becomes his Harley Quinn. Yes. So yes. the movie does want to show that even this perfect, amazing human being who has nothing wrong with her still has the capacity for evil. This is not something unique, and we all have the capacity for good and evil. We all have both of these inside of us. Yeah. And there is like definitely like a God complex here. The idea that they can yeah. go into each other's minds and essentially rewrite it. Yeah, that's or true. Injure. Both these films do talk a lot about the God complex. Big God complex. Yeah. Yeah. And I also think, you know, when we talk about how, at least when I was thinking about how these movies are parallels in a lot of ways, it's like we're essentially going into this dream world and what happens to them could be real in their physical ramification. It's not exactly the same way that sphere was where, you know, the skin, you know, there's physical, you know, snake bite or, you know, jellyfish or whatever, or burned alive. But it's this like, if you believe something bad happens to you in your brain, you know, you could die, which is essentially what happened to Carl. Yeah. And it goes into the, the yeah. lucid dreaming thing as lucid well. Lucid dreaming thing. Because mm -hmm. in the cell, if you forget that you're in a dream and you accept it as reality, then you can't get out and you lose control of it. So it's still the same idea that if as same long idea. as you're aware that it's a dream, then you have control and you're able to to get out. Well, yeah. And isn't right. that the ending of Sphere where once they were aware, they were able to push that button? To get out. Yeah. And to literally just make themselves forget. Yes. And to conclude that we are too fucked up to have this power. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. That's what I mean. I think it is specifically noting on the power there. It's, uh, I mean, in Sphere, your fears are going to kill all of us. Your manifestations injures our entities, Jerry. <laughs> Jerry. They could have picked any other name. Jerry. <laughs> I know Jerry. Jerry. So much when the aliens <laughs> like, my name is Jerry. I'm like, what the fuck? <laughs> Jerry is an entity from New York and he likes his bagels. Everything in Sphere, I was like, this is great, but it would be so much better if it were a Rick and Morty episode. Honestly, oh, yes. Oh, my God. Like, it, it's, yeah. it's so silly and campy, and I just wish it were more campy. Anyway, sorry. <laughs> no, but I think, I think it is touching on the... What like kind of like the psychological difference between those at the top versus like those in in the world, right? Like there's there's people in politics who are running things and they're not necessarily on the ground experiencing them. And there's that like that that difference between the two. And one of these people has power, and the other people technically don't have the power. And specifically, the line "Your fears are going to kill all of us." And thinking about what was happening like in the 90s with Desert Storm and like the lead up to 9-11, it's like, yeah, these people are scared of other entities out there and thus are putting the entire United States at risk mm -hmm. because they're scared of Zionism, essentially. Mm -hmm. I want to ask, and it ties into all of this, in Sphere, they make that decision at the end to forget, that they say that we are not ready for this power. Do you guys agree? Do you think that was the right decision? Yeah. Yeah. And why? And is it for the same reasons of them that like we're too fucked up, we're too evil? I don't think that there were two. No. 
It's not that we're too fucked up or too evil. It's that we're too selfish. That's a good way of putting it. Mm. That's what it is. It's like, if I could just manifest something, just everything would go my way. But then if everybody, you know, we've all seen Bruce Almighty, that's not going to end well for everybody. <laughs> that is such a perfect comp. <laughs> oh my God, it is. This movie is Bruce Almighty. <laughs> yeah. No, but yeah, putting it in the hands of anybody in power, it's like, the point is that we're going to abuse it. Yeah, it's not that they're evil. They're just selfish. It's so interesting because, like, obviously we're in the 90s and not the 50s, but we've talked about the 1950s and sci-fi horror films and specifically how they touch on the atom bomb. I think this is also, mm. like, goes to it, you know? It's, like, it's the yeah. constant power struggle. Yeah. And it's interesting. It's always in, in the sci-fi films. It always, always comes back to that. Because they all have such cataclysmic consequences if you yeah. correctly. And so it always kind of comes back to maybe we just shouldn't have this. Hey, maybe we shouldn't <laughs> hold the controls. Somebody else take the wheel, please. Or maybe just don't. You but know? I don't think that's argued in the cell. Like at no point do we question, should these scientists not have this power to go into someone else's mind? Yeah, that's true. Yeah. I well, that was the thing. That, yeah. Again, with my thoughts on consent in the yeah. cell, it's just like they never really question whether or not that it's an okay thing to do morally. They're so concerned with whether or not they could that they never stop to think about whether or not they should. And that's Jurassic Park for you. Now we're going back to Jurassic Park in creation. Michael Crichton. Okay. No, but like, you're not wrong. Like, man, nobody, nobody questions that. And you're just like, fuck. No, it's not, it's not good for anybody. Consequences are real. Maybe the cell then like, isn't necessarily a sci-fi film at in any point. It is a technologically advanced psychological thriller. I guess the only problem that I have with the cell now that I think about it, and one of the biggest reasons that I think that people had trouble with the movie is that nobody was really quite likable. Like even JLo wasn't like you're just like, oh, she's amazing. Everybody tells you that they're supposed to like these characters, but they don't ever do really anything. They feel too archetypal. They are. Yeah. They're they're stand-ins for characters instead of characters in their own rights. She is that idea of the Madonna. Right. And yes. between the two, I would say that Sphere had way more likable characters just because... More well-rounded. I wouldn't go yeah. that far. Oh, but well, they have you know Sam Jackson. I mean. They have Sam Jackson. Yeah, Sam Jackson. So. Who is the least developed character. Yeah, but he's also the best character because he's Sam Jackson. To get back to the question, I agree with all of that. They shouldn't have this power and the military is right there and I don't trust the military at all. And also, like, obviously they've shown that they can't really control the power and that's a problem. The only part I'm going to disagree with is that this means mankind is evil because it it it's their subconscious desires. Like, I don't think we can be judged by our subconscious. I, mm. I, I strongly think that our subconscious should not be something that we judge ourselves by. Like Sharon Stone has the suicidal ideation and that manifests as it tries to kill all of them. But that is like a nagging thought in the back of her head. That doesn't mean that she was suicidal. Mm -hmm. I don't I actually don't think she was suicidal anymore at all. The two differences I would say about how people get hurt in both movies is that the in the cell, the Carl has intent to actually do yes. harm. Mm -hmm. But in Sphere, they do not have real intent. At least 
Carl has intent in the real world. In the dream world, you can debate that as to whether or not this is his intent. Also true. But mm -hmm. in the real world, he obviously has intent. He chooses to yeah. go and kill women. Mm -hmm. But both argue that it's based in something that happens in the subconscious, right? Like yes. that's the whole reason why we we go into Carl's mind in the first place is to uncover the subconscious that fuels his actions. I mean, again, it's also very seven. It's also very, again, the serial killer motif of the 90s is like we need to understand our enemies in order to act against them. But like the fear of sphere <laughs> is that anything you think, anything in your subconscious will manifest as reality no matter what. And that's a completely different ballgame because like this is th th this isn't an accurate way through which to judge all of mankind because we do have choice. We do have the ability to choose, OK, that part of my subconscious I can act on, but this part I'm going to not do that. I'm going to find some other way to relieve that and not like you know carl had the option to just like watch some fucked up porn and not actually kill anyone yeah agreed but also you know what i think is also you're kind of bringing up something and again it's i think it's the problem with the end of the movie sphere which is mm. that technically they could have used this for good why did they all just jump into scary shit like mm -hmm. why did nothing good happen for them right like why did none of them have sex dreams yeah, right. and in something that like they don't answer themselves, because like even Norman's like, I don't know why, but it, clearly this is what happens. Right, right. Yeah, well, that's because he's a bad psychiatrist. You're at the bottom of the ocean in a scary environment, encountering alien life for the first time with a bunch of people who you don't like. Of course, your brain is gonna go to dark yeah. places. I'm surprised your brains didn't go to dark -er places. You guys are probably not that fucked up because it was all pretty tame. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, but like, really, like, right off the bat, we decide that we can't trust Norman because Norman lied about the whole yeah. report. Yeah. How is he a responsible, you know, trustworthy narrator? He's not. The other curveball with the cell, too, is like they kind of blame everything on this made up schizophrenia disease. They're like, regardless if he did have the choice, he didn't have the choice because he's sick. And that was an excuse, another motif in a lot of 90s movies of like, yep. there's got to be something specifically special wrong with these people that they're like that. They never go to, well, maybe he's just like that and he's a piece of shit. Right. And we've talked about this on previous episodes, but it's also pretty problematic to say like, oh, well, he's schizophrenic, so he can't control himself. Like, that's not what schizophrenia is. And the data on schizophrenia does not support this at all. <laughs> People with severe mental illnesses are much more likely to be victims of violence than perpetrators. Yes. Yes. Studies are mixed on whether it even has any correlation with an increase in violence. Some of them say there's literally no correlation at all. You're just as likely to be violent whether or not you have schizophrenia. So it's like pretty problematic. And like yeah. the fact that they use a made up version of schizophrenia, I read that kind of like, you know, in Science of the Lambs, there's Messed a line up. like Buffalo Bill's not really transgender. I kind of read um, it that way where it's like, oh, we we realize that this might be problematic. So we're we're saying it's not the thing you're familiar with. And that that addresses the problem. Right. And it, it doesn't yeah. really like it's still problematic. Thank you for recognizing it as problematic, but it still is. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Any final words on either of these two films? Uh, it was a ride. <laughs> it's definitely it was a, a ride. ride. Yeah, let's uh, <laughs> let's get it more into your thoughts of what you thought specifically going to Rob's favorite section, the bone review section where we rate films on a 1 to 4 bone basis. Let's start with our guest, Chelsea. 
no, don't do a bit of me. Yes, I'm going to do you. What was your rating for Sphere? Well, it definitely wasn't as good as I remembered. (laughs) Um, But it was fun. I would say if, if, if I would give it a solid two, two bone. Things that I did really like about it, I loved the special effects. It felt very much like a really cool action-packed movie. There was never a dull moment. I really loved the performances and I loved how it got scary and intense. It's your quintessential 90s movie. Was it the best one? Uh, Maybe not, but I do feel like there were some pretty good scares in there. Was the story and the plot sound? No. Was the world building and the math, the straight up math sound? No. (laughs) And because, because, because they couldn't do basic addition i can't give it more than a two a two brutal (laughs) (laughs) david what about you i have mixed feelings i like the idea of it i like the sphere itself and i like how stupid it is the fact that you know they introduced sam jackson he goes ah yes the year 1709 right now it's 1998 so that was 288 years ago i'm a mathematician and that's just incorrect i love that i think that's amazing i was laughing so hard there's an alien named jerry i mean there's not really an alien named jerry but there's an alien named jerry like this is amazing this is like top tier shit and the ending is really cool actually i love the ending (laughs) i didn't expect it i thought they were all gonna die i really wish the movie played into its camp aspect more and i think it takes itself a little too seriously for its own good like it it doesn't feel self-aware of these things and that makes it harder to buy into a lot of it all of these scientists are very bad at their jobs which is the point of the movie but they keep wanting you to respect everyone and i'm like i don't they're all really bad at their jobs and none of them should be here i wish that it had been barry sonnenfeld directing this <laughs> and that like instead of Dust Hoffman, Sharon Stone. It should have been like Jeffrey Combs and Barbara Crampton. <laughs> Sam Jackson is brilliant. He's the best part of the movie. Dustin Hoffman is an amazing actor who is, I'm sorry, really out of place in this film. <laughs> it felt like he was a little bit aware of it being campy and that's just half-assing the movie and also just a little bit taking it too seriously at the same time. And it just feels like he's in the wrong movie. I just wish the whole thing were campier. Because it's a cool idea, and it would be really fun if it was more self-aware. You wish. You wish it was Deep Blue Sea. That's all I'm going to say. I haven't seen it's... Deep Blue Sea. <gasps> it's Samuel okay, Jackson at the bottom of the ocean also. Oh, okay. my God. Later, later, later. <laughs> I know, I know, I know. I'll have to watch that now. Okay. I'm giving this two bones as well. Yeah, it's fun. It's fun. I'm also giving it two bones. I wish it was scarier. The setup is so great. Like it has everything that I want. It has characters that I want with problems that I want. And the psychological aspect is there. I just wish the monster wasn't a giant squid. I wish it was what we all said was the fear of being trapped down there with these worst people. Like that, that to yeah. me is scary and can be done so well. Like Cabin in the Woods-esque mm-hmm. kind of story. Mm. It just had too many story problems. And I agree. Like Dustin Hoffman feels like he's phoning it in. It's really weird. It's very weird. It's so weird. But like so much of this film though, like works. Like in the second half of the movie, I was just in it. Same. And it was scary and I liked it. And I still feel like, I don't know, if I saw this today, maybe I wouldn't have liked it as much as when I first watched it as a kid because it was so scary as a kid. I feel like I'm still 
Yeah, I agree that. with that. I agree yeah. with that. As a kid, when I watched this, this was really peak terror for me. I have that in my heart, so I don't want to give it a bad rating. Yeah, so like two. Two. Giving us the bone rating for The Cell. Chelsea, take it away. Oh, this is a tough one because like I actually think visually it was just stunning. I mean, every vignette is something that I would see in Haunted House. The art direction is like kind of unmatched in a lot of movies even today. I mean, there's a lot that they did also practically. I mean, given this movie, I think it was still shot on film, except they had like, you know, that peak shitty 90s CGI moments that were just straight up bad, but still pretty good. But I loved the sets. The sets were really impressive to me. The visuals, just standing alone, narrative aside, were just freaky enough to like leave a lasting impression. So like, obviously, you know, the horse slicing, and then you have even the dog next to the bloody filled bathtub shaking the blood everywhere. I mean, like, these are like, this is, this is rated R just for some of the imagery, I would say. However, obviously, Vincent D'Onofrio was the, the best. He was just such a monster in this movie. And I thought that he was really compelling to watch. Do I think that JLo was great in this? No. <laughs> she was so also archetypal. Like, what is this weird, like, I'm a sensitive woman and and I'm here to save you. And like, it was like, <laughs> she, she didn't have any complications. We didn't learn anything about her, where she came from, how she ended up there to begin with. What are her qualifications? I just want to know more about the characters I'm supposed to care about. But even Vince Vaughn's character, Peter, was it? I think his name is in the movie. He just tells us why he does what he does. Like, no, I want to see some real backstory. It's a movie. Show me. So in that way, as much as I, I think, see, this is hard because I think that visually this gets four bones. But the story, uh, this is maybe like one and a one and a half bones a low bone wait She's a lone bone wait overall it's one and a half one and a half overall oh, oh wow <laughs> and like i i'm so sorry it's like just looking at the narrative like if i were gonna read this screenplay garbage <laughs> visually visually yeah, yeah yeah this is freaky and it will always have a lasting impression like if you put this whole movie on mute yeah four bones <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, the ideal way to watch this movie is on yeah, mute. Is on mute. <laughs> oh. I'm sorry. Don't be is sorry. That no, don't be sorry. <laughs> that isn't to say that I don't like movies that are one and a half bones. I think that's fair. But it's still one and a half bones. <laughs> <laughs> I will defend Jennifer Lopez. <laughs> I'm going to defend J-Lo because I agree with everything you said, but all of those problems are in the script. Those aren't yeah. her performance. Mm -hmm. She performs exactly what is written. What is written is bland and boring, but she does it. And like yeah. she was cast to play this like archetypal metaphor of a person. And she plays an archetypal metaphor of a person. She feels like that ethereal, this human is not real, but is what the screenwriter thinks they want for the story. She plays that well. I think she does a good job. Not as good as Vincent D'Onofrio. Vincent D'Onofrio is fucking amazing. Obviously, he's the best part of the movie. He's awesome. Well, no, the best part of the movie is the visuals. Let's be honest. The visuals are great. There are times when I thought the visuals had like some weird filters that were very 90s. It's not quite 
on what dreams may come level of visuals. But I'm also a little bit more forgiving of the story than I am of what dreams may come because it's not religious propaganda. Fair. <laughs> Although there is some propaganda in there, but I just assume that there's going to be propaganda when I watch a 90s or 2000s movie. <laughs> also, a little bit of problematic stuff around the mental. There's 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 a bit of problematic stuff in here. This movie very much <laughs> thinks it's realistic and it's really not, which is kind of true of the entire subgenre. I prefer actual slasher movies i like slasher movies <laughs> yes i'd love to see a slasher movie with this level of visuals wait that's just terrifier no i don't want that <laughs> no, no yeah fuck no i don't want to see that what's your bone rating two bones <laughs> two bones it's fine i'm really into the visuals i completely checked out of the story at some point i'm like this isn't interesting but it's pretty it's really pretty <laughs> yeah it's, it's not just pretty visuals for the sake of pretty visuals, but it's pretty visuals that say something, that mean something, and that mm -hmm. add layers to the flat story. Yeah, I don't have much to add to both of what you guys said because I totally agree. It's interesting because I saw a lot of reviews that like praise it for interweaving three different storylines together. I was like, but it but it doesn't do it well. Like it doesn't go <laughs> deep enough into any of them. We could have gotten a really interesting Vince Vaughn character. I would love to hear more about like why he is the way he is and how he saved Jennifer Lopez so quickly right. with no experience. None. The costume design I love. I want to shout that out as well. And I'm just like also really pissed that I watched this on Amazon because the print that they have is so bad. Oh, no. and oh really? The looked so bad. And I'm like, no. Oh, wow. They have like the cigarette burns and everything in there. So so oh. don't pay for it on Amazon. Mm. Two bones for me. It's so 90s. And I'm that's the why harshest I like one. I mean, it's not too far off. Yeah, right? I guess so. But again, I can like a bad movie. And again, it's one of these ones that like, I loved as a kid, even though it fucked me up. <laughs> total, total. I also just want to quickly address the fact that Vince Vaughn was a prosecutor who then decided to become a cop instead because he could do better good that way. Crazy. That is a plot point in this movie. I don't think anyone has ever done that for any reason, but especially with the reason that he can do more good that way is hilarious. Hilarious. Love it. Well, I'm going to I'm going to shut us down. I'm so happy we finally got you on the show. Yes. This was so much fun. And we got to talk about these movies because like we were both very excited. And I finally saw the movies. Which I think are definitely part of like this weird subculture of horror genre. And like these yeah. two movies get nods in so many other movies. Guys, thank you so much for having me. I was so nervous. I was like, hi, I'm here. <laughs> What's going on? It's just like getting getting a beer with you, Ed, every time we see you. So it's like, yeah. I love that. I love that. Well, guys, thank you. Now I need some like eye candy, I think, because I, I I did rewatch The Cell last night and now I might go watch Babe. Is that the yes. takeaway of this podcast? Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, for everyone listening, you can find Chelsea. We have her links in our show notes. And check out Lucy's Tale on Alter. And soon, Scooter. And you can follow us as well. We are at Cadaver Dogs Pod on Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok. We'd love to hear from your thoughts or if you have any recommendations for future guests, episodes, whatever. Please send us an email. We are Cadaver Dogs Podcast at gmail.com. Also in the description. Thanks so much. Peace. Bye.
we come in peace. Always wanted to say that.